give you that one. Brand new, hot off the presses. Oh, there you go. I'll get right here. That's what, you're just a giver, Julie. You're just a giver. I was good. So, all right. Okay, so Romans chapter 12. We've obviously come quite a long way. And uh, make sure, yeah. Um, and so we're going to get into, uh, obviously, the rest of the book may be more familiar to you. Um, 9, 10, 11, those chapters, uh, you've probably read them. Uh, I'm going to guess you probably haven't, like, dived as deep into them as we did together. Uh, there's a lot of things in there that may seem redundant and repetitive. I mean, obviously, when it's dealing with a lot of things with the Jews and those kind of things, it's hard for us sometimes to connect with. Romans chapter 12 is going to start moving into a section of the book of Romans dealing with the Christian and his manner of life. The Christian and his manner of life. So kind of now we're getting into that kind of practical application of some things, some, some real life principles, if you will. And this is now going to begin to deal with the believer. So we've kind of transitioned from the Jews and the Gentiles and those terminologies and moving into really just the believer, those in Christ. And so if you remember Romans chapter 8, we talked about that those who are in Christ have the Spirit of God. And we talked about the love of Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and all those things, and all the amazing, amazing blessings that God gives us in that relationship. Then 9, 10, 11 seemed almost like it was out of place, because it kind of seemed to kind of just jump into all this stuff about the sovereignty of God, and then the free choice of man, and then the, Jew, the Jews, and the restoration of Israel. And it was almost kind of like out of place. Remember we said, but it tied in perfectly with an invitation Right? It was always inviting the Jews into that love of Romans 8. But then you get into Romans 12, and it's almost like the application of Romans 8. Because we have the love of Christ and the Spirit of God, this is now how we can live. This is now how we can live in this world. Uh, some have suggested uh, that there is not a theme or a flow to chapter 12. Uh, some have suggested there's not really a good theme or flow to chapter 12. Uh, that it is merely a collection of exhortations, that it's just kind of this very maybe wisdom literature type, pro Proverbs type, you know, just these statements, kind of boom, 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 exhortations. However, I would suggest that, as is the case in all of Paul's writings, there is a very specific purpose and flow to this chapter. Uh, one of the reasons why I love the writings of the Apostle Paul is because everything is very kind of thought out, Right? You get into every letter to every church, whether it's the Galatians or the Ephesians. He's always kind of establishing this truth. And then he goes on and says, okay, because of that, now this. And because of that, now this. It's not just random, right? And obviously we know that's because of God's working through him. But I believe there's a very clear and specific flow to chapter 12. And it's really cool how Paul puts this together. So Romans 12 and verses 1 and two. So we're going to read just the first two verses. This might be where we spend most of our time tonight um, and kind of break this verse, these two verses up, but we'll kind of spend some time here. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, if I can get a volunteer to read that for us. Nikki, awesome.
Okay, so probably one of the most popular two verses in Romans, right? You get out of Romans Road, okay, the kind of the path of salvation. You get out of those verses. This is going to be those verses that are quoted a lot, right? Now, one thing you have to notice is when it talks about this idea of uh, verse 2, and we're not going to dive into it too much in the notes, but be not conformed to this world, right? That phrase. Now, when I first was saved in the youth group here, uh, I heard that a lot, uh, just in Sunday school or youth group or whatever. And I'd always hear that, be not conformed to this world. But I, didn't, I don't know if I heard it early on in the right context. So what are some ways that you think someone might use that phrase in the wrong context? Maybe in back in the day kind of maybe legalistic churches. What do you think they might use that to mean? Okay, your apparel. So what about my apparel? Okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and what is that level? Probably the knee, right? Down to the knee. That's what I always remember hearing. It was way down there. So it just kept kind of scooting up, right? I don't, see, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that is. But anyway... I don't want to know what it is, so don't tell me, okay? So I don't want my image of Julie to crash down. Um, so, so my apparel, okay? So now, obviously, there is a degree with my apparel that is modesty, right? Now, we do understand what's true about modesty. There's an aspect of cultural norm to modesty, okay? So let me give you an example. In our culture, it's immodest for a woman to walk around without a top on, right? Now, that may happen at times, but if I went to, say, Central Africa in some tribe in the middle of Africa, that may not be immodest to them, right? And we, I've, I mean, I've talked with people that have been experiencing, and not so much in Africa, but um, one of the missionaries that we met when we were in Pennsylvania at Wyumi was talking about one of the tribes down in South America, that that was, it was just what it was. It's a billion degrees, that's not anything immodest, right? It's more, um, serves a practical purpose than any kind of, a, you know, alluring type thing. So again, we understand there's somewhat of a cultural aspect of that. Now, I would believe that, like, you know, if I'm a missionary going there, I need to be guarded because in my cultural understanding, that's immodest. So I need to be the one that makes sure I'm staying focused right, okay? And I asked this missionary, I said, well, when they all got saved, did you tell them they got to put clothes on, you know. Men too. Men didn't wear much, you know. And he said he didn't necessarily say anything about it um, because he was just kind of interested to see what would happen. And he said, so what happened? He said, well, what's funny is some did cover up, some didn't. And so then he was wondering, were those that covered up, was it actually really immodest for them but they just didn't know it because they didn't have any other way of thinking other than their tribal norm. So it was really interesting, he said, to watch that dynamic unfold. But when you see this idea of conformance to the world, modesty is huge. When I was at first doing youth camp, we went to uh, Camp Chautauqua. You used to have to wear uh, certain, you know, certain things. So like your skirt, your shorts had to be, uh, what was it, Sandra? Fingertip, fingertip length. So, you know, it had to be down to here if you were a woman or whatever. Um, tank tops. Yeah. You'd scoot your arms up real quick. Um, 
tank tops, right? I think it was four fingers here and three fingers here. So it had to be three fingers wide here and no more than four fingers low. Now, when we were at camp, okay, and we'd be going to chapel or whatever, there were some students that I would have to ask Sandra or another woman leader to say, hey, can you just go maybe we talk to her a little bit? You come to find out, obviously, either they didn't know or they just, nobody had really talked, talked, taken them aside and said, this is appropriate, this isn't. Um, sometimes they were unchurched kids. This is just what everyone else is wearing. Yeah, sometimes it was they knew exactly what they were doing and didn't care, right? They just were trying to be rebellious. So there is an aspect of apparel that does deal with modesty, but that's not usually what people really harp on when it comes to clothing in church, right? It's, it should be modesty alone. That should be the only clothing issue we bring up. But sometimes we'll say, well, if I don't wear a suit to church, then I'm conforming to the world, right? Um, what other area might we try to apply this in, not just in apparel, Outside of modesty, I would say. How else might people try to use this phrase and not really use it in context? Because there is an appropriate use of it. Okay. Okay. Like an Applebee's, where there's a restaurant, but in the middle there's a bar. Okay. Yes. That was one I remember in youth group I heard a lot. The reason that we were always told not to go to the movies was because you may be going to see a good movie, but you walk out, they don't know what movie you just came out of, so you're giving a stumbling block, okay? Bad testimony. There's another one that tends to be harped on more when we're younger, I guess, in high school. What I listen to, right? Music, okay? Um, not even, now, we're not talking about what my experience was when I was even in college, it wasn't Christian music versus secular music. That wasn't, it was Christian music that was not the Christian music. And I remember, you know, there was a, uh, a couple in our church that um, they were kind of the college directors for a little while. And I remember we were here doing something, doing a, we were doing a fundraiser. So we were doing a bake sale. So we came up to bake some stuff and make food in the kitchen. And that we were just goofing off, you know, just hanging out, making no-bakes or whatever, and uh, brownies and all this stuff. And I remember, you know, they were listening to, like, Southern Gospel, which, hey, whatever, it's all good, you know. I, I've always told people this way. I don't necessarily like, I wouldn't listen to Southern Gospel on my own, but I can worship to it because I, I hear the message of it. So I, I, I understand. This is Christ-centered. They're worshiping the Lord in this aspect. And so I remember having a conversation with somebody right then and there because I shared some music that I was listening to that was Christian, heavily Christian content. And somebody said, well, you're conforming to the world because you're listening to music that's just like, whether it be rock and roll or whatever. And I looked at this person and I said, so you mean to tell me, you mean to tell me that Southern gospel sounds nothing like country music? And the guy looked at me and said, no, it's completely different. I said, you go get me a country music CD, and you go get me a southern gospel music CD, and let's play them one after the other. I guarantee you there's going to be some similarities. Well, but it's the content. It's the words that makes a difference. I said, and there we are. Just because this one has more guitar or more drums, it's still the content. But that's where people have taken this verse a lot. Be not conformed to the world. And then they'll put their definition on whatever that looks like. Yeah, we all do it to some degree. We all have preferences. We all have preferences. I have preferences that are different than you. I've always said this. If I could do my preference of worship on a Sunday morning 
we would have no instruments. It would be a cappella all the time. Now, in my car, I like listening to praise and worship and different music like that. But for a church gathering, like if we were worshiping in a church setting, to me, the most worshipful congregational singing is when we just hear the voices of God's people. To me. But I would never, as a pastor, come in and say, all the instruments are gone. Because it's not about my preference only. It's about creating a worship experience where we can kind of bring all of this together. So that's why we have hymns and praise and worship and all these things. So what is this verse really talking about then? Well, it tells us, right? It, the context of this verse deals with what? Our m- minds, right? Our minds. What drives us? What motivates us? What, what pushes us? What we think about, what we dwell on what we desire. And so Paul's saying what? And we'll break the first verse down in just a minute. But basic idea is here, be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So my mind, I should not think like the world thinks. So what are some ways that our world, we're really broad brush here, okay? What are some ways that the quote-unquote world thinks? Separate from Christ. What are some worldly ways of thinking I mean, what comes to your, like, what do you think about? Like, you could say selfishness, right? Whatever makes you happy, right? I just thought about this, and I had a space, I spaced on the verse. Oh, what is it now? Okay, so, yeah, selfishness, absolutely. Isn't it in... This is a pastor fail, guys. It's a pastor fail. Uh, the epistle. Uh, John says, these are the things in the world, the love of the world. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's First John, isn't it? You guys are, I mean, come on. You're supposed to help your pastor out. First John 2. Okay, I'm, I'm in First John. Got it. Okay. I was reading, I'm skimming through all of First John right here, and I'm like, it's not 4, it's not 3, but I knew it was. Um, okay, let's see here. There it is, verse 16. Okay, so First John 2, 16. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... And the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So when I think about when Paul says here, be not conformed to the world but in your thinking, but be renewed, I would say if I'm being driven and dwelling my thoughts on these things, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'm not thinking as, the, as Christ would think, as the, as the body of Christ would think. I'm thinking like the world would think. So whether it's like Julie said, I step over whoever to get what I want, that's the pride of life right? I want that, so I'm just going to take it, right? The lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. I see it. I covet it, right? That was, that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't covet your neighbor's goods, basically. I see that. I want that. I'll do whatever to get that, even if it means compromising what I know is right and wrong. I'll do it. James 4, right? Why do we kill? Because we lust and have not. Wars have been fought over, I want, you didn't give it, now I'm just going to come take it. Right? 
And so when you see this here, what Paul is really saying is, man, our minds have to be dwelling on the things of God. How do we do that? We renew our minds by the work of the Holy Spirit. How does the Spirit of God renew our minds? Because we can say that. He says, let your mind be renewed and transformed, right, by the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit's doing this work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And I would say, right. So I think in an instant, the moment of salvation, what's given to us? The, the book of Romans actually says, and other writings say, we have the mind of Christ, right? We don't have to, we can pray for the mind of Christ, but the Bible says we already have it in salvation, right? Philippians says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's the point of that passage? He humbled himself. Right? It wasn't about him, although it could have been. So we have the same mindset, the same attitude. We humble ourselves. We make it all about God, all about him, and we live that way. Right? But then also through prayer. Right? Philippians 4 talks about this idea of rather than being anxious, pray and everything. Then he goes on to say the peace of God. Talks about that living in us and already abiding in us. But then he says this in verse 8. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So we get into God's word by the study of God's word and the application of the word of God. Then through prayer, the spirit of God is applying these things and our minds be, our mind has been transformed because I only had the, the worldly fleshy sinful mind before. I had no option. Right. I couldn't dwell on those things. But then I'm saved. I'm renewed. I'm given new life. Now I have the mind of Christ. Still the old man is there. Still have the flesh. But now there's this battle between where am I going to let my mind dwell? Once I start allowing and walking in the flesh, those thoughts will dominate. Not Philippians 4 thoughts. But I step over here and go, nope. I'm not going to think like the world. I want to think like Christ. God, strengthen me. Renew me. Now I'm beginning to dwell on these other things. And it's coming from the Word of God, number one, through prayer, through that relationship there as the Spirit of God is working. And then as Julie said, as I apply these things, now I'm seeing my mind be renewed. And it's, it is. It is a process. We're given the mind of Christ in the moment of salvation, and then we're um, sanctified, right, progressively, meaning we're made holy over time, but we're also sanctified in an instant. I'm, I'm instantly sanctified. I, I'm fully saved, fully cleansed, fully redeemed, fully uh, perfect in the sense of sin forgiven before Christ, but then I grow through that. So when I read this verse in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that little phrase, and be not conformed to this world, that idea of conforming to the world is allowing myself to be like the world in my thinking to be led into thinking and being driven and motivated by things as the world is. And if, there's a, if there could be a horrible testimony for a Christian, it's that. 
That, to me, that's the worst testimony that I, as a believer, can, can carry. Now, we've all done it for a season. We've all conformed to the world. By the way, letting fear drive you and motivate you and dwell on fearful thoughts, that's how the world feels. I mean, imagine for a moment you don't have Jesus Christ and stuff's going on like that happens like we talked about this morning, which is not new, by the way. For a few thousand years, the world's been a pretty crazy place. Okay? Stability comes and stability goes. Our nation has seen times of stability and times of no stability. I mean, imagine living through the Great Depression. You want to talk about uncertain times. It's crazy to think about. So when you think about that, now imagine you have Jesus in those times. There's a peace there that even though you don't like it and you still don't know what's going on, you can say, but I know God and I know I'm in his hands. Now take that away. What do you have? You're only left with fear. So when we allow, by the way, believers, when we dwell in fear and, and start to spread that to other people and say, well, I can't believe this and I can't believe that, and we're starting to like let that dominate our thinking, we can be aware of what's going on, but be careful. I don't, I don't think it's a huge step from caution and concern and aware to fear. I don't think it's this long road we go down. I think it's a pretty short step where if we're not careful, we can still go, I'm using wisdom. I see what's going on around me. I'm discerning this. But if we're not careful, we actually let our minds be conformed to the world and that we start living and thinking and deciding things in fear first, not in, in the gospel first, not in Jesus first. So to me, that little phrase that Paul just, and he, I love how Paul does this, by the way. He just kind of throws it out there, like this simple little statement. And we're, we just spent about 20 minutes talking about that phrase and how it's been misapplied and applied, applied appropriately. Sandra. I was thinking, not even just fear, but mm-hmm. any emotion. Yeah. So maybe what we could say then is any emotion to an extreme, and in spite of truth. Right? If I allow any emotion to drive me, and I'm not driven by truth, then it's, it's the world's way of doing it. Because the world is driven by emotion, right? I mean, greed and pride, those are emotions in a sense, right? Uh, lust is really the, the foundation of greed and pride, right? Um, anger leads to violence, hatred. Those are all emotions that are not led by truth, right? Now, as a believer, should I, should I be angry? Well, the only thing I can be angry about is sin. But am I angry towards the sinner? No. I can say, I don't like the sin. I, I hate the sin. Man, I really, really hate this, the enemy, Satan. But what does Paul say? We war not against. Right. So we're, I think as believers, we struggle with, we get so angry about the sin and what sin is doing that we almost, if we're not careful, we'll take it out on the sinner. Now, I'm not saying the sinner doesn't have consequences for their sin. Obviously they do. But we need to be careful that we're not letting our minds think like the world. I've told you guys before, I was sitting with two other Christian families, couples, two other Christian couples. And this was a while ago, but we're having a meal. And the sin of pedophilia came up. And both, both men that were sitting at the table, both Christian men, said, if that ever happened to one of my kids, I'd kill the person. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was like, I get where they're coming from. It would be. And so I was like, well, maybe they'll talk this out. Because I'm just eating like, 
I can't be that pastor that just always wants to correct. I just have to keep eating, you know? So I just kept eating. Like, okay, get there, guys. Get there. Figure it out. Nowhere in the rest of that 15-minute conversation did any of them ever say, everyone said, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. No one talked about forgiveness. No one talked about the gospel. I understand humanly, but again, humanly speaking, violence. What does Paul say? No, no, be not conformed to the world. Should there be consequences? Should there be justice? Hey, I'm all for that. But, but to me, I think, and I understand that. I mean, it makes me sick to my stomach to think about those kind of things. But when you read the word of God, it says, hey, in while you were yet sinners. And the reality is, every sin we commit makes God feel the way we feel about that sin. If we were to think about it. So to me, I love this verse because it challenges us at our very core to think about why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Why am I feeling this? And if I do feel something that's contrary to it, let me submit that to the things of Christ to dwell on things that are appropriate according to Philippians 4.8. So real quick, I want to touch on this and then we're going to put a pin in this because it's actually almost seven. Um, you guys shouldn't let me talk so long. I can just keep going and going. Okay, Romans 12.1. How does he start verse 1? What are the first couple words? Right, I beseech you, brethren, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, what I want to point out here, and this is in your notes, it's not I command you, right? What does beseech you mean? Beg? Appeal, okay? What's that? Implore, okay? Some might say uh, plea, I plea with you, right? I implore you, I beg you. In reality, the Apostle Paul had the authority to command the believers to do this or that. But rather, he begins with a plea for them to adhere to truth. When Paul says, I beseech you, it is a call like unto the gospel. It is an invitation to experience all that the Christian life has to offer, which involves first an understanding of the purpose of the Christian life. This chapter could be broken down in three ways. I was reading from, uh, I think his name's Elvin McLean. I wrote a book, uh, a small kind of a commentary to the book of Romans. It reads more like a novel than a commentary. Um, but he points this out in the chapter on this chapter. He says this, The Christian life is a life of consecration, a life of humility, and a life of love. I thought that was great. A life of consecration, a life of humility, and a life of love. One author said this, those three ideas in those three sections also present three different attitudes of the Christian. Consecration is the attitude of the Christian toward God. We are to present ourselves to God fully and freely. Humility describes our attitude towards ourselves. Love describes our attitude towards others. I thought that was interesting. I love that Paul could have said, I command you. I'm telling you to do this. But in essence, what does he say? I offer you. I'm asking you. I'm appealing to you. I'm not commanding you. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is not, I command you. The gospel is, if you will, you can come. Right? This is a free gift offered to all, but God does not command us to receive the gospel. The only essence of that we see is that it is the only way unto salvation. So I guess if you want to say that's a command, but he never commands us in the sense of, you better do this. No, it's always language. The language is always what? I offer this to you. It's an invitation 
right? Even Jesus said, hey, you can come. If you're weary, come, right? What did the disciples say to one another when they were telling the next one about Jesus? You've got to come and see this man. The woman at the well, come and see a man that told me all things. It's always an invitation because the gospel is first an invitation to others to experience true life. When you understand that, the law, we've been reading a lot about the law, right, in Romans? About the do's and the don'ts and the do's and the don'ts. And then we get to 12 and it's this, I beseech you. And the difference there is so clear. Uh, The next kind of phrase there that I was going to break down Real quick, and we'll do that. I guess we've got a couple minutes. You guys aren't in a hurry. Uh, therefore. So the word therefore, that's in your notes. Um, so in your notes there, and I think this is in there, there are three very important therefores in the book of Romans, uh, which mark three divisions in the book. The first therefore is in Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pretty big division, right? What was before all that? The world is guilty before God. The Jews are guilty before God. The Gentiles are guilty before God, right? Romans 3, here's an invitation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, right? Romans 4 talks about Abraham being justified by faith. And then we get to chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which is an amazing transition away from wrath and judgment, wrath and judgment, but now you can have peace. Now, the next is in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful transition that is to understand. And then the third here in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore. In each of these, uh, we see an emphasis on the work of Christ. It's always about the work of Christ. The word therefore implies what came before, which in this case is everything from chapters 1 through 11. So it's always building on, again, this is why when people say, oh, this chapter is just random exhortations and kind of just a collection of encouraging words, when he starts with therefore, he's building in a case from the first 11 chapters and moving on from there. So I see it being very uh, logical in its flow. Uh, Any comments, questions, or thoughts before we dismiss in prayer as we kind of put a pin in that? Comments, questions, or thoughts? All right. Well, let's do this, guys. We'll go ahead and pray. And we'll ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and then that we would go forth and make a difference because of them. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your grace and love in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that in our world today, there are many things pulling at us, many distractions and deceptions. But I pray that in all of it, we would have a sure footing on the word of God not because we are able to stay in your word, but because you, by your grace, have kept us. Kept us in our faith, kept us in our salvation, and have held us true to what the word of God says. And so I pray that we'd continue to walk therein. Thank you, Father, for the transforming and renewing power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the way in which you work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to dwell on the things that are that are pleasing to you, that if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, that we think on those things. But I find it amazing, Lord, that the, that way of thinking, that mindset comes right after we realize that we can take all of our stress, all of our worry and anxiety to you in prayer. We lay it at your feet. We realize that there's peace that comes after that transaction of us giving you our stress and anxiety and you giving us your peace. 
And then after we've experienced that moment, now we can think on these things. So many times, Lord, in my own life, I try to think on these things before I ever go to prayer. I try to change my own mind and think on things that are better before laying my anxiety before you, before laying my worries before you. But I pray, Lord, that we would keep it in the order that you lay forth. Understand salvation is in Christ alone. Understand you care for us, that we can come to you. Lord, I know that many things in our world are seeming confusing and challenging. Many things are flying around as what may happen here, what could happen there. But Lord, I pray that in the world of what ifs, we can trust in a God that is, that is constant. Lord, we don't have to fear what tomorrow may bring because we know if we live in tomorrow, you'll be with us. So help us to not be conformed to this world in our minds, but be renewed. Thank you for the power that you give us to walk in a way that would make a difference in other people's lives by sharing the gospel with them. Father, thank you for all of this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.